day doing it. Uh, and then just, I mentioned last week that we're going to be looking or skipping over two chapters. Uh, that will be uh, 18 and 19. When we get to them, we're probably going to skip those two. Uh, those two are just a retelling of some of the judgments and the condition of the great Babylon and then another worship scene. And, and we've covered those a couple times already, so I don't want to tax anybody's attention or drag it out any longer than, than what's necessary. But, uh, but if anybody has any questions over those, when we get there, just feel free to stop and we'll discuss them anyway. So Revelation chapter 16 <clears throat> uh, says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome, malignant sore on his people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Uh, so immediately brings to mind or brings to my mind that of the sixth plague unleashed in Egypt. A lot of these plagues that we're going to be looking at here in this chapter are kind of going to take your mind back to that time in Egypt. And that's by design, I'm sure, uh, especially this one here. If you go back and see what the sixth plague was on Egypt, it was specifically uh, unleashed on uh, Janus and Jambres. I believe that's the name, if I remember right. The magicians who in Egypt who withstood Moses and Aaron. These were the ones with Moses put down his rod. They said, well, well, look, we can do that too. And of course, God's rod ate thirds. But these struck them down so they could not stand against Moses and Aaron anymore. Took them out of the picture. And this is the same imagery uh, that God is portraying here too. These people who have uh, withstood this true church, who have stood in the way, uh, this is the same imagery as here. And so God sends this plague, whatever it may be, upon those who worship the beast and who serve him and practice sorcery. Uh, and they that submitted to the mark of the beast, now God gives them a new mark to go along with that mark. He says, okay, you want to go that route? We'll give you another route. Uh, a quick word about sorcery. Uh, yes, it does mean things like spells and curses and hexes, but as we've talked about before, uh, it's not just like the Harry Potter franchise. It can mean potions. It means drugs. Uh, for example, heroin, meth, and other drugs. Uh, this could be fitting in the uh, definition of the word sorcery. Uh, now, today, thanks to this sorcery, this drug epidemic, we have become experts at spotting such marks. Uh, besides the little twerky actions and the movements and stuff of a, of a drug addict or a meth head, how else can you see them? How else can you spot someone who uses a lot of drugs? Well, a lot of times they got sores all over them. And they're, they're always scratching the sores and stuff. This is kind of could be like exactly the same thing as what we're talking about here. Uh, some kind of epidemic like that back in their time. But if this is applied to our time, then, then it would be fitting to our time as well. Uh, some commentaries think that this to mean an actual uh, attack on, on the spiritual Roman Empire, that, that of the Latin church, and that these deadly sores or wounds uh, would be or more fitting to that of the French Revolution. Uh, France was once the one-time strongest supporter and arm of the Catholic Church. But during the French Revolution, it broke free from this rule and influence during the Civil War, and it would never again, the Catholic Church would never again recover from this wound. Uh, French people would never go back to being their, their arm again. Uh, verses 3 and 5. <clears throat> the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became 
blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out its bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because your judgment the, uh, judged these things. They, uh, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Uh, again, uh, going back to the plagues of Egypt, we saw, uh, again, this kind of similarity. And we saw earlier in our look uh, some of the other judgments about the uh, great carnage poured out on Rome like that of the vandals who turned the oceans with blood with their attacks on Rome's navy. Attila the Hun who turned the rivers with blood with his coming on in there. And this could be exactly the same thing uh, in the in 1700s, the Protestant England and Catholic uh, Europe would uh, would find a continual would fight continually over the mastery of the sea. Just during one of these such campaigns and battles, uh, just one mind you, that of Napoleon, the Church uh, back navy suffered the loss of 600 ships of the line. Now, when I say ships of the line, this is equivalent to a battleship, to aircraft. This was the biggest, baddest boy of the day. So just in one of these, they lost 600 of those. And think about how many sailors are on one of those big old giant sailing ships. Uh, and uh, thousands of smaller ships, warships, and uh, countless cargo ships. So indeed, the oceans did run red with blood. And as far as the rivers, where we saw, like again, Attila the Hun, the same thing kind of happened here. Uh, a lot of historians and uh, commentators think that uh, here it could talk about the persecution that took place uh, from spiritual Rome. Could be that of Albigenes. A-L-B-I-G-E-N-S-E-S. Your guess is good as mine. <laughs> Which were the target of the early Latin church for decades. Uh, the church decided they wanted these people out. They wanted to stamp them out to remove them completely. And they launched crusade after crusade after crusade to kill these people and drove them out, starting with Pope Innocent III. You know, kind of a fitting title for a man who wants to go out and just decimate everybody. But that was the title he took. Uh, and this was an early Reformation movement uh, who took, uh, who took a, a front to the church's uh, priests' extravagant lifestyles and the way that the clergy uh, were fed and clothed and lived in such royalty and pop and promise while everybody else was starving to death. You know, you have people out here starving and you got, you know, people running around here with thousand dollar coats and everything else. And so they taught that that was wrong and of course that angered the church straight and they tried to wipe them out. Uh, but God's wrath was brought upon them for this persecution in several ways like that of Bonaparte in 1796 where he crossed the Alps and attacked the Roman churches, armies all along the whole rivers until the church uh, brought him off. They said, look, here's 21 million francs. I don't know what that would be today, but it'd be a lot. They said, here, here's 21 million francs and take all these masterpieces of art. So you want to know how the Paris Louvre got all the art pieces? Here's one of them. He took them right back to Paris with him, uh, where they're still on display today, a lot of these. And another one of these attacks uh, against the spiritual Rome in 1798, even the Pope himself was captured and carried off and took back to France as prison. So here, once again, we see this one time strong right arm of the church is now attacking the church and it's turned on. Uh, and even though the uh, 
Since France still held on control in Rome, they had to install the new Pope in Venice, Italy, which was, I think, the first time it ever had to be installed somewhere outside of Rome. Again, I'm not saying this is meaning is 100% exactly, but it shows us what it could look like, what the imagery is meant to portray. Again, I kind of believe that this is not the wild way of thinking, but it could just as easily fit today or fit sometime in the future. And again, I'm not trying to single out or beat up on any church, but this is what the history shows us to be true. I'm not saying anything that's not true and not trying to belittle anybody. Uh, verses uh, 6 through 7. Uh, I'm sorry, seven, uh, we already read through 6. But uh, verse 7, And I heard the author saying, Yes, O Lord, the God Almighty and true, righteous are your judgments. Uh, so God's righteous wrath upon those who would persecute and kill his followers, who, li uh, who lives by a sword must die by the sword. He reap what your soul is, basically what he's saying. Uh, verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bow upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over the plagues. Did they not repent so as to give him glory? The parallels with Egypt uh, plagues continue, uh, but here the sun, instead of uh, in Egypt it was actual sun, but here a lot of people believe, and I'm one of them, that this is talking about the supreme ruler of this uh, of this spiritual role. Uh, often you'll see rulers referred to in the Bible as lights, suns, and stars. Uh, we see that with Jacob. We see that with other leaders. We see that with Jesus Christ too. Uh, they refer to him as the sun. Not just the S-O-N, but the S-U-N because he was the leader of the people. Uh, fire uh, is equal to judgment in the Bible, suffering pain. Angel poured out judgment on the ruler and he in turn took it out on the people. Uh, it always rolls down here. I've never yet once seen a boss that get in trouble or get chewed out or, and it don't come down here. And it's, and it's the same thing here. If, if the leader suffers, everybody under that person is going to suffer. And just like in Egypt, uh, the people are being stubborn to the end. Uh, the Egyptians would not give in until finally God said, okay, I'm going to take your first point. The very most they could take, but they held on to the very end. It's like when Moses, uh, when they... Pharaoh repeated the lie. He'd say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I'll say, okay, when do you want the frogs to go away? Well, all of us would say now. You know, right now, right now. Because, I mean, there were frogs everywhere. You open the cereal box, there's frogs. Put your shoes on, there's frogs. I mean, they was everywhere. But he just said, no, tomorrow, just make them go away. Yeah. And that's what these people said. No, we can deal with this. We'll deal with this. And they still blaspheme God instead of turning to him. Stubborn to the end, mankind from the beginning has been nothing but stubborn. If they are told to do something, they will refuse even if it's in their best interest at times. Right. This fiercely independent spirit often leads us to destruction and ruin. You see it again and again and again in Israel. Uh, you see it again with the early church and again now with Christianity in the last days you see it. And it's always been in man and it's always will be. God often refers to stiff-necked people. That's what he's talking about. He's refusing to bend to my will. Uh, verses 10 and 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became dark. And they gnawed on their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The throne of the beast that has already been established that we're talking here about Italy, and especially 
the role. Uh, this has always been the, the head of the beast, and it will continue to be. Uh, the new spiritual Rome, it's still right there in Rome. That's where its capital is still at. So that's where it's referring to. Uh, God poured out his judgment upon them. Verse 12. And if I'm going too fast, anybody's got any comments, feel free. Just, you know, if I don't see you, raise your hand up. Just speak right on up. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. Uh, the Euphrates River here mentioned, uh, but I believe it to be symbolic as it was uh, when it mentioned Sodom. Revelation talks about Sodom. It wasn't talking about Egypt. It wasn't talking about the actual Sodom. It's speaking metaphorically here. Uh, it talks about Babylon. Again, it's not talking about that ancient city Babylon in Iran. It's talking about the new Babylon. And here's the same thing. So this great river Euphrates is some kind of barrier that was keeping these rulers from attacking and overpowering the city. And it was hindering them somehow. And somehow it was taken away, uh, leaving them open to attack. Where these kings could just come in and take vengeance upon this great evil city. This would be something possibly like uh, Cyrus who turned the river that ran through the city and turned it through its way. And the city was set over top the river. So once he turned the river, he just marched right in under the city, right into our dry riverbanks. And took the city easily. So it could be something along that line that the Bible is referring to here. But somehow or another, something was blocking these people from coming in and, and just wreaking havoc on this city. And God says, okay, I'm taking this barrier away. And that's, that's what he's referring to here. Uh, verses 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For these are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the king of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God Almighty. Uh, the rulers uh, here, the, the ruler behind these empires, the true person behind all this is shown none other than Satan himself. Uh, he's been directing these leaders. He's had this demon that's been possessing these people or been in charge of these people or, or manipulating them. And he sends these demons now out to the world, this false religion, this is apostate church and kingdom. Uh, and here we see the unholy trinity. Remember what he said the name of the beast was? 666. Man pretending to be God. And here we see this unholy trinity. You got three evil spirits pretending to be God or God's persona on earth. Man impersonating God. These evil spirits then go out to the these leaders, go out of these leaders and into the world. Uh, into the world powers and rulers deceiving them but into coming into this false religion's aid to help her fight against God's true church followers. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about too, about it talks about false miracles and able to perform signs and things of that nature. Uh, to this, this kind of seems unreal to us, but this still goes on today. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but there are certain artifacts in the Catholic Church that does things that are baffling man's mind. Scientists have tried to explain it, and they can't. They've got one vial of blood that's supposed to be from some saint, I, I don't know which, but it's dry as can be. You know, it's, it's hundreds or thousands of years old, but once or twice a year, it turns back to liquid, and then it goes back to dry. And they've got statue that weeps blood, and things like that, things that we don't believe in or 
or maybe we say is we know who's really behind that. But if you don't have that faith and you see these things, it can easily move you or trick you if you don't know the true Word of God. And these perhaps are some of the miracles that the Revelation is talking about, these false signs that these prophets went out and performed. Uh, could be something akin to that, or it could be something just like Janice and Jamie's illusions and tricks and things of that nature, chemistry. We know those men though as Christians though that Jesus says there'll be no signs, you know, and that's what that's what my faith is in the word of Jesus. There'll be no I'm not gonna look for some magical, mystical special. Unlearned and ignorant people though will. They will look for those magical, mystical things, you know, like a the eclipse of the sun or something like that and try to make it they force it into a, a square peg into a round hole. And that's not that's that's from not knowing what the Bible is. Yes. You know, and Jesus says there'll be no sign. That's it. There'll be no signs. And uh, we don't need to fret about that. And, uh, that's why that's why I always uh, deal with that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you know. And I don't know how those things happen, but it's some sort of trick. I don't know how the guy saw the woman in High Fifty County Fair either, but it, you know, they do it. I mean it looks like it. Yeah. And uh, but you know it's it's like Yeah, David Copperfield, I was uh, blessed they took us to see him one time. Mm -hmm. And he did some things that you I just you can't believe you, you can't believe it, no. you can't explain it. I know it's trickery. I know it's not real, but you can't explain no. And it, this is the same thing that's kind of going on. Uh, even in their altars to this day, anytime they build a new church in the altar, they put some kind of a relic, some kind of <coughs> superstitious thing inside the altars. And the altars are built around that thing that's supposed to protect the church and do all sorts of things. Uh, that's why you see people go to these healings and stuff like that. So. Uh, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and who keeps his clothes so that he will not walk naked and men will not see his shame. Uh, always be on alert, be ready and watching for Jesus and the enemy. They will try to deceive you, uh, to uh, try to trick us into following them. Jesus could come uh, for us individually at any time. He could come back to gather his church at any moment. We must stay in constant state of preparedness or risk being left out. Uh, and fall into the enemy's hands. Like the ten foolish virgins uh, when Jesus finds himself coming up. Let's go ahead and look at there. Let's go to Matthew 25. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oils and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delayed, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Jesus has delayed His coming. He's not come back yet. And this fits us a lot today real well. Well, he's, you know, it's been 2,000 years, He ain't coming back. We begin to let our guard down. We begin to sleep. We begin not to be so on fire about evangelism and things of that nature. But at midnight there was a shout, and behold, the bridegroom coming out to meet him. Then all the virgins who rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will be not enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going, uh, going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready 
went with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on alert then, for you do not know the hour or the day. So, that is a perfect example of Revelation 13 that God is saying here in 15, 16 to 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. You don't know when you're going to happen. You don't know when you will breathe your last breath or when Jesus will come. We could be in here now and you could hear the voices of our angel. We could all go home right here and right now. We, we, we don't know. So you got to be ready. So many people, well, I'll, I'll, when I get my life right, then I'll come to church. Or when I get this took care of, then I'll start doing more in the church. Or I'll get more involved when I do this. When I retire, then I'll get involved in the church. You might not get that opportunity. Uh, and then the God finds that way. The very first verse, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will be made up of the kingdom of the church. The Lord's churches, the people that are in the Lord's church will go to heaven. Those that are in the Lord's church will not be there. Okay? You've got to be in the Lord's church. Okay? And of course, you know, babies will be in the Lord's church. Some retarded people will be that can't think for themselves will be in the Lord's church. But you've got to be in the Lord's church. He has got to be. Lord adds you to his church. And that's what he will present to God. And that's what the kingdom of heaven will be made of. It won't be uh, strivers or people that don't believe in the church or, you know, say, give me God without the church or you know, things like that. We hear that a lot in this world. You know, I'll be like, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in going to church. And, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, you really made it. And like Luke said, half of people fell away. You know, and that's exactly I see that all the time. I see people fall away. A lot of people teach you can't fall away, but I know people very much so that fall away. Well, that shows completely that you fall away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't need another person. No. Another person. Now, if I say I'm married to my friend, but I never go home, right. am I really married to somebody? Uh, then the rest of the chapter, 16 through 21. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Then the seven angels poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flames of lightning and sounds of per uh, peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine with fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were uh, not found. The huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of their plague of hell because of that. Plague was extremely severe. So here we see a lot of clues again pointing us to this being Rome. Uh, split into three parts. We've seen Rome being that. Rome was referred to as the mountains because it was built on these mountains. And God says, you know, there's never going to be a fall as great as it is with Rome. And, and, it, and it held up to its, to its building here. Uh, God's wrath on Rome is now completed. Rome is split into three. And then these three are even destroyed and fall away. 
All its supports and uh, supporters leave it and flee it. Uh, even today, Rome is still, of course, a country today, but it has never ever recovered its uh, bankrupt. I mean, the EU was trying to figure out ways to prop it up and to save it and stuff. And it, to this day, it's never recovered and it never, ever will. And being a lot of people believe that there will be a great battle one of these days over again, and that will be the end of time. That's not what this teaches here at all. It's absolutely, because we know that Babylon is gone, okay? The Greek Empire is gone. The Medo-Persian Empire is gone. The Roman Empire, you said, is gone. The three parts of it is gone. You know, there's always been dynasties and stuff like that. It's, the United States is a world power right now, but it may not continue to be. Russia is, it may not continue to be. China is, may not continue to be. Well, we do more destruction now than they even thought about doing that thousand years ago. Uh, and that's, Jesus, that's interesting note, too. If you know, we go back to Daniel, he talks about the world kingdom's coming. Yes. He talks about the Persian knowledge and Rome, and there will be one more great right. one after that. Right. Right. Could be us here today. We, I believe 100% believe we're living in the last day. Well, and I think, I think the last kingdom to come yeah. is the church, which will last forever. Yeah. That's the last one to come. And I believe the Bible teaches us that it will be when we least expect it, not to this big prelude to this big battle. You know, that don't mean we won't have a nuclear war sometimes. Somebody blows stuff up. That's very possible. You know, that China could shoot bombs on us and blow us a lot of us up. We can do the same. But we won't destroy the world. God will say that's the end of it. When God says it, that's when He's done. And this this valley of Armageddon. Right. This is, folks. This is a little bitty, bitty, bitty tiny that's valley. Exactly. You cannot fit two great big old world powers in this little. You'd be lucky to fit a couple of thousand soldiers in this little map. It's, it's not a great place. So this is not a literal big battle of Armageddon that, that everybody makes it out to be. This is a little bitty, bitty place. Uh, it's right there uh, up above the Dead Sea and the Jordan River at the top of it, where these two kingdoms come together. Um, you got hills on each side, and it's this little bitty valley where a couple of wars have been fought in the past. And this is just what it was referring back to. So how do we apply this, or what is this speaking to us or can speak to us today? Uh, rest assured that those who mistreat the innocent and choose evil over good will be brought to justice. The beast worshipers will commit themselves to his wicked regime to save their lives, and for a few years it will probably look like they might have gotten away with it. That their persecutions uh, gotten away, their persecutions and murders of believers will be overlooked. But Revelation 16 reminds us that God's judgment is inescapable. It may seem like they're getting by with it, but they weren't. The same is true today. It may appear that the wicked get off scot-free, but one day there will be a record. God has made it clear that the present uh, that the present world system, which rewards evil and punishes good sometimes, will come to a tragic end. The images of Revelation 16 can be distilled into two key truths to remember as we navigate injustices in this world uh, today that we have to deal with. Wrong's done. First, justice in this world will always appear to be distorted. The psalmist lamented, Behold, these are the wicked, and they seem always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastised even in the morning, every morning. In other words, he's saying life is a raw deal. He says the wicked get more wicked and are blessed and I'm doing what's right and it seems like I'm getting punished. Right. You work hard at school to make a hard-earned B+, but a fellow student cheats and cuts corners and gets an A. 
and gets in his grand scholarship and you lose out on it. Your wicked co-worker, who's always goofing off, uh, gets promoted by flattery and slander, but you follow the rules and you get fired. You're, uh, you maintain insurance on your car, but somebody without insurance comes along and hits you and leaves you with the bill. I've had this, I had a three, I bought a, I guess it was 92 or three, I bought a brand new Toyota, four wheel drive. Real pretty thing. Had gotten 300 miles on it. Some guy from Ohio without a lick insurance, I stopped at a stoplight, he was going 60. Oh. Had to pay for all the truck myself, had to pay for my insurance bills myself and everything. And he never got nothing. I said, oh, if he comes down to Kentucky, we'll get it, we'll get it. Well, what are you going to do? You going to throw him in a jail? No, we'll give him a $350 fine. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, we've all experienced unfairness in life. We have all uh, expressed our frustrations about injustices and hurt in this fallen world system. I know I have. I sometimes, you know, question, why? Why, why, why bother uh, and these words of the psalmist really resonate within us. But the second thing is, is this. Escape, uh, escaping the reality of God's judgment is impossible. The same psalmist continue on with this psalm. Uh, uh, coming to his senses and looking at the world and from a divine perspective rather than a human continues. But when I ponder to understand this, well, I, it was troublesome in my sight until then it dawned on me. When I came to the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein that they will be judged in the end. Surely God has set them on slippery places. They will not be able to stand. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And this is Psalm 73 I've been reading from, verses 16 through 19. That cast down, and whenever you see the cast down in the Bible, uh, a lot of times it's referring to sheep. When a sheep gets cast down, it's, it's over on its back. It's like a turtle. You put a sheep on its back, it can't get back up. It'll just lay there and die with its feet dangling in the air. And that's what he's saying here. He said, God's going to knock them over. They're not going to be able to get back up. They're not going to recover from this. And uh, he said this, he finally understood it. Just as God will hold the tribulation rebels accountable for their wickedness, he will hold every person accountable for he, for his or her own life. It is impossible to escape God's judgment. Reminding ourselves of this fact will help us to come to terms with the brutality of the present world and injustices that seem to reign in it. One day the tables will be turned and the justice will be served at him. Reminding ourselves that injustices of this world will one day be, be undone can bring tremendous benefit. The unfairness we endure for righteousness' sake suddenly feels worth the cost. Uh, this kind of theology is therapeutic. It can ease our anger and frustrations and depression. Over uh, our striving against sin in the world will not go unnoticed. It has not gone unnoticed. Nor will the indulgences of sin go unpunished by God. Any uh, comments or questions? And to the people going through the great tribulation in John's time, this would have been great comfort. Yes, we're going through it rough, but yes, they're not going to get by. They're not going to get off scot free. Ben, I think, you know, Bible church teaches that vengeance is mine, I will repay, said the Lord. And I think when we go down that vengeance road, we're going down a road that's, that's there's, no, there's no happy ending. There is no happy ending. Somebody kills somebody, then you go kill them. Well, what do you know? I mean, you know 
exactly for beans, you know, and beans. And that's, you know, that may be a little bit, but then you've got that the rest of your life, you know, that you have to deal with, you know, we'll call out there. Satan delights in beans, because it brings us down to his level. And, you know, somebody hits you and then you hit them back harder, you know, when you've got a sore nose and they've got a sore nose. And when you go home and you really think about what I done, you know, I may have myself at the ball game or whatever the situation was. And uh, I cussed them more than they cussed me. You know, what have you done? You know, that's his stuff. It's not good. It, 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 it takes us to bad places. You know, you know, we read about it every day in the paper. People do these heinous things because, well, he stole my wife and I'm not going to leave the house. I'm going to kill him and kill myself. You know, just, it just don't ever end up. All that does destroy your industry. You see people kill themselves, kill their kids, so that their ex-wife can't have them. Things like that's terrible. Business is awful. And we need to, we need to just, you know, like Jesus from the cross, Father forgive. And we have to forgive them as best we can. And uh, and then we live peacefully on the people as much as we possible. Business is a bad word here. Uh, any other comments or questions about 16? If not, we'll go ahead and read 17. And uh, these little pre-things I've been reading before there to kind of help us get our mind or understanding that, uh, I've gotten these from several different commentaries, and I, I, I've also, I keep forgetting to give credit where credit is due on one of these. And, uh, I think this one I think I've gotten from uh, one that I'll have to get with it, but uh, I, I failed to give credit. I'll try to put that in there now and give them the proper credit uh, for coming up with some of stuff. <clears throat> but in this one, it said uh, in 1844, Karl Marx famously described religion as the opium of the people. That political philosopher viewed all religion as man-made, as man-made, a church that helped people uh, escape the hardships of this world system by. Resting their hopes, confidence, and comforting on something other than the heartless world around them. The uh, cure for humanity, the need for religion, Marx argued, was to overcome the condition of oppression and inequality that forced people to seek a philosophical, uh, philosophical sucker from outside themselves, Marx's solution. Communism is the anesthetic system, uh, atheistic system, that involved the uh, invokes as much uh, religious zeal in the 20th century as any man-made religion system Marx had ever criticized. Marx's critic of religion as the opium of the people also makes Christians cringe. Uh, but I think he, he, was, he was right. And hold on before you label me a communist, which I'm definitely not, that can explain. Marx was right that all man-made religion is indeed worthless and useless. Uh, it is a crutch. Merely a deceptive uh, philosophical crutch to distract people from the real conditions of this world. However, his unforgivable error was to lump Christianity in that same category as man-made religions and to prosper uh, atheistic communism to replace it. When <clears throat> you stop thinking about Marx's words, you realize that his criticism of man-made religion was dead on, but his own man-made solution was even more wrong. The Bible uh, itself presents a picture of man-made religion that gives us a heavenly perspective on the matter. Travel back with uh, the period of time and when humanity history following the Great Flood. After Noah's death to the land of Shinar, the birthplace of worldwide religion, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 
1 through 9 is familiar to most of us. Instead of obeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply and spread out over all the earth, the descendants of Noah moved east to Shinar and location of ancient Babylon. There they defied God's mandate to spread throughout the world, performing to, preferring to band together and build a tower that would symbolize their man-made greatness. Uh, look at humanistic attitude they had. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach to the, into the head. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In order to avoid uh, the very thing God commanded spreading over the face of the earth, the people decided to make a name for themselves instead. Interesting, the ancient Jewish historian uh, Josephus pointed out that the Jews built a tower out of burnt brick, uh, cemented together with mortar made of bitten. That is, they made it, uh, made it waterproof. They didn't believe, they didn't trust in God's promise to never flood again. So when they built this thing, they made it waterproof. Because they said, I, I'm not trusting God, I'm trusting in myself. I'm trusting in my own hands. Uh, and here they, some foundations of man-made religion is they reject God's promises. They're faithlessness. They're faith, they don't have faith or they're faithless, so they figure that God will be too. And so they don't trust in God. They trust in themselves and their own works instead. They rebellion against God's command. Instead of doing what God says, they find reasons to disobey and not follow through. And a refusal of God's grace. They instead they change it with legalism and following a strict standard of the rules that they've made up along the way out. When Jesus came back, you know, the Old Testament was full of enough rules of itself. If you go through Leviticus 3, there's enough rules of itself. But the first it says, no, 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 we gotta add even more. And it became so legalistic, you can, a person cannot keep up. Uh, God responded uh, decisively at this attempt at utterly uh, at uniting humanity under a single nationalistic religion. He confused their single language and divided their races, produ uh, producing several indecipherable dialects and breaking their ability to work together towards their godless ends. The result, they were forced to obey God's earlier command and spread out over all the world. However, instead of creating a multitude of diverse nations and cultures united in worship of one true God, the nations fabricated countless man-made religions and created numbers of gods of their own after their own image. The plain of Shinar where Babylon was built eventually became the center of the one world earliest empire's Babylon. <clears throat> the religious pride of Babylon is well documented. Written in Babylon's accounts of the building of the city of Babylon referred to the construction of heavy, uh, heaven by the God of, uh, as a celestial city. The Babylonians took great pride in their building this city, boasting that it was, uh, was, was the gates of God. This brings us to the book of Revelation, which mentions Babylon six times. And again, this is all symbolic. It says, Fallen is, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passions of immorality. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine, his fierce wrath, which we just looked at. What we'll be looking at here in 17, on her forehead was written a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of all hearts and abomination of the earth. Uh, then again in 18, uh, we're going to see her several times. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who has become a dwelling place for demons. 
and through prisons of every unclean spirit, and prison of every unclean, hateful bird. Uh, woe, woe to the great city of Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Uh, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence that will not be found any longer in it. <clears throat> Our knee-jerk response may be to interpret the city mentioned here as an actual historic city named Babylon, or as a great region of ancient Babylon in the Middle East, uh, present-day Iraq. However, the name uh, Babylon already appears in New Testament metaphor for the city of Rome. Uh, 1 Peter 5.13 is the first place we see Rome referred to as Babylon. In light of Revelation's uh, symbol, uh, symbolic language, it seems to best identify Babylon, not specifically as a particular city or country, but as a reputation of this final, godless, humanistic, national, worldwide religious system that would try to supplant God and take God's place. And that's what, uh, to me, we're talking about here, the spiritual role, this Babylon. With the armies of earth gathered for the great battle of Armageddon in 16, Revelation 16, 16, and the shocking preview of the final wrath of God still echoing in the halls of heaven, uh, in 16, uh, 17 through 21, the drama subsides and John heard a gentle voice calling for his attention. An angel, one of the seven, poured out the bowls sim sim symbolizing the final wrath of God suddenly took on the role of apocalyptic tour guide, leading John through some of the vision symbols in order to explain the meanings of the images. And so here in 17, we're kind of going to eavesdrop when we get into it. And let the Bible kind of explain to us stuff. Like I said, you always want to be the Bible, let it be its own interpreter. <clears throat> Whenever you try to start interpreting things privately or whatever, you kind of lead yourself astray. So, Lord willing, next week we'll come back, we'll uh, read chapter 17, and then uh, we'll start breaking the parts of that. Thank you.